that's awesome. Mm-hmm. I would have spent the shit out of my mouth. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> I'm not eating what's going out my nose. Oh, God. That's <laughs> 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 just terrible. Oh, God. Welcome to Secondhand Stories. I'm your host, Jim Zabo. And I'm your co-host, Colleen Stewart. All right, so, um, Colleen, you know how I like themes, right? We've been doing a lot of themes lately. Yes, Jim, we know you love themes. We get it. Uh, So, I actually didn't realize that we were going to have a theme for these next two stories because I was so late in, like, getting everything together. Um, But this week we have The Crab by Lyle Roebuck, and next week we'll have... Um, Reassembly Required by Samantha Melvin. Um, and both stories, they obviously don't deal exclusively with this, but I think they deal a lot with um, playing the game. There are certain people or certain situations where you just kind of have to learn, not necessarily how to deal with them, but you know, you learn what to say and when to say it and what you can and can't get away with. And um, I think both of these stories have a lot of um, just content about about that kind of theme. So, yeah, I see that. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, the main reason that I wanted to run this story now, um, The Crab by Lyle Roebuck, um, it just seemed like the epitome of like August and the dog days of summer. I don't know if you got that vibe too. Paul, oh, yeah, totally. It's like... There's a lot of like rain in the story, but it's there's also a lot of talk of like heat waves and um this probably would have been better when it was so hot like a month ago, but um Hey, it's still hot in my apartment, people. There you go. No air conditioning, I bet it's pretty hot. So um we'll get right to the story with Lyle reading the crab. Hi James, this is Lyle and I'm here to read my story, The Crab, which was originally published in the Arkansas Review subsequently published in the Roanoke Review, and it's going to be reissued this fall in Phantom Drift, a journal of new fabulism. Um, As you can tell, I don't have a southern accent, although I am from the south, so for the purposes of the read, I will slip into one like a pair of dirty old socks and channel my inner Frank Underwood, for the narrative, and uh, switch it up a little bit, maybe for the uh, dialogue. Okay, so uh, with that, here is my story, The Crab. They handle death differently in the South. Soften it up with slow speech or shoo it like a horsefly threatening to sting, which is not to say this is better or worse than how they cope in other places, just that it's different. But it's summertime when death is not much on anyone's mind, and horseflies are a legitimate nuisance, and Maddie is eager to run down to the marsh to play with the other girls, Shell and Iris. There's a long wooden pier that angles like a broken leg 100 yards through mud and tall grass to a river that doesn't flow so much as it rises and falls with tides. The marsh is more fun for the girls than the shallow pools of water between houses or tracts of undeveloped woodland, where the only living creatures are ants, songbirds, and snakes. In the marsh, there is an assortment of life. Rabbits, strange white birds that look like they've been folded out of paper, small dark hens, gators, 
and crabs, both fiddler and blue. Except for Mrs. Dismuke, who is said to feed loaves of white bread daily to a large gator that comes to sun in her backyard, Ruthie has neither seen one nor heard of anyone seeing one, and Ruthie has lived by the water all her life. Gator sightings, as she understands it, are the purview of those with backyard swimming pools or small dogs. In her mind, the danger is the dock itself. It is in poor repair, rickety, rotting beneath, and missing planks, and that had been its condition years ago, the last time she had been to the end. "'You walk to the end!' Ruthie hollers from the belly of a recliner where she's stranded by her weight. "'Don't run!' Ruthie doesn't have to guess. She knows where her granddaughter is going. To Maddie, her grandmother is Meemaw and always will be. But the girl is already running, a jellied mass of chicken gizzards, necks and backs, spotting a pink trail from one corner of a butternut bread bag. Maddie brings the bait, shell the traps, and Iris, usually just herself. This is how it works. Although she didn't ask if she could have the chicken, Maddie can't imagine Meemaw will object, especially when she comes home with a cooler full of crabs for supper. Maddie imagines herself in this way, larger than life, like some kind of hero. The midday heat is archetypal, the bayou's best impression of hell, where white light squints the eyes from a sky so full of sun that the only relief is to keep one's gaze to the ground. By 9.30, Maddie and Iris are standing at the cusp of lawn and marsh where the Devonshire estate is at their backs. You got the traps? Maddie asks. The blood soup has drained away and only flaps of yellow, fat, and violet bone remain, which she displays to suggest they need a trap more than they need shell. Even as she asks, Maddie knows that Iris will say, No, ma'am. Iris is black and poor, poor like Maddie, but somehow, and in ways she can't explain, it's better to be white and poor than black and poor. Maddie would never say no ma'am to Iris. We gots to have trap? Iris asks. Yeah, dummy. But they don't have twine either. Shell is supposed to bring that too. So Iris says nothing and sits beside Maddie on the oyster bed, and they wait. Without saying anything, Ruthie curses Tom for skipping work. They can't afford indulgences, and although she stops short of calling it an indulgence to attend a funeral, the result is the same. I was the only white person there, Tom says. Sat in back. These were as many words as he had said to his wife in days. Was there many people? Yup. Ruthie moves her head as a prelude to getting up, which is not going to happen. One of them, I think it was the sister, throwed herself on the body whilst the casket was still open, Tom says. Ruthie does not want to interrupt, lest the miraculous speech stop. That right. It was quite a show. Tom opens a can of beer. I have to say, it weren't what I expected. That's the thing about death. You don't get what you expect. Ruthie wouldn't have moved even if she could have, struck by this odd philosophical brush. She wonders if Tom stopped for a beer at Twin Oaks on his way home or if the man is some kind of imposter. If he keeps on like this, Ruthie decides she'll refrain from mentioning he can still earn a half day's pay if he goes to work. 
What you die of? Cancer, Tom says, down in half the can. The crab, his wife murmurs, stomach, I believe. She shudders to hear this. Ruthie cannot explain why, but ever since she was a little girl, she was sure that this would be her fate. Every occurrence in another person, known or not, terminal or not, is a harbinger of her own death. It was good of you to go, she says. She reared you and your sister, after all, even if she did get paid. God knows I ain't getting paid to bring up this one. Ruthie is thinking of her granddaughter, Rob in the marsh, and the neighbors of their lot. Where's she at? Tom asks. Crabbing, Ruthie says. Again? There won't be a crab left in Terrebonne Parish by the time school starts. Tom sits up and leans forward. She ain't at the Devonshire place, is she? Didn't say she wasn't. Damn, I hate that, he says. What if they come back and decide to use their dock and them girls is down there? Anything wrong would be our fault. Easy to blame the poor, Ruthie says absently, and her lips begin to twitch as she spots the remote which has fallen to the floor. I'm going to work, he says, swilling the rest of the beer. Drunk, Ruthie says. And although she immediately regrets such discouragement, Tom is not fazed. On the way out, he bends over, retrieves the remote, and places it on the TV tray near his wife, as one would furnish a dog with its bone. She had not asked for it, and yet she is grateful. He can read it in the way her lips are still. Their bodies are like jewels, fresh from the mind, but better than jewels because they move. Metallic blue foil backs with bright red claws dotted in pearl teeth, the promise of a pinch worse than the reality. Even though Shell brings the traps, Maddie insists on being the one to hoist them to the surface. It's her bait, she reminds the other two, and besides, this is her spot. It is a magical moment to draw the weight against the resistance of dark water when the O-framed basket clears the surface and there's a crab, or two or three, leech into the carcass bait. Iris is appointed to overturn the traps into the cooler. If someone's going to get pinched, it's probably going to happen during this transfer. Occasionally, one will fall short and launch itself from the end of the dock into the safety of the river. When this happens, it's convenient to blame Iris, and the loss is subtracted from her total. The afternoon can pass slowly on a dock. As the tide rises, the prospect from more crabs dims. Low tide gives the best luck, and the girls are aware of how shallow the river is when the water line has receded the full six feet from the platform, exposing mounds of soft mud on both sides of a ford that's plugged with marsh grass and pocked with holes bored by fiddler crabs. I gots to pay, Shell proclaims before disappearing to the shore. When she returns, trotting down the planks, she's cradling a rock. Iris spots her first, wobbling toward the left side of the pier, then overcorrecting and nearly falling off the right. She stops short six inches from the edge, and the missile plummets. It barely clears the end of the dock before plunging through ductile mud and out of sight at the river's edge. There's a wake as water fills the void. Fifteen feet away, two herons loll into a jade sky. 
Way to go, dummy, Maddie snaps. Way to scare the crabs. What's left of them? Iris says. The fact is, Maddie's last four pulls have come up empty and most of the bait has been scavenged away. What do you care? Shell says. Sides, the tide's coming in. But we only got nine. Maddie feels like crying, though, more from rage than disappointment. Nine ain't enough. That's only five for me and that ain't enough to stuff a snail. The other girls don't question her math. That's okay, cheetah. Shell says, turning back down the dock. You can have mine. I'm tired. I'm going home. Meemaw, I done caught eight, Maddie screeches, circumnavigating the yard's many obstacles, car tires, a bicycle frame, a couch, a box spring, and assorted wheeled toys. Ruthie is on her feet, limping to the door to meet her granddaughter. My stars, child, ate what? Ruthie already has a five-gallon pot on a burner out back. Crabs? Maddie remembers that she forgot to ask permission for the bait or to go in the first place and puts on a sad look to compensate for whatever mercy a few crabs might buy. What's y'all gonna eat? I know, Ruthie cajoled. You and Tom can have that leftover chicken. She finds it hard to be angry with the girl as much as she despises Maddie's mother, her own daughter. Ruthie tries to adore her granddaughter as if she is a kind of second chance. Let's get a look. They's big, Meemaw, the child says. When the cooler's lid is removed, there comes an uninspired scuttle toward the top. The crabs are the color of dirt, more bronze than blue. Having been out of the marsh for hours, the color of their claws has turned from pink to brown. Well, there's nothing to them, Meemaw says. Put the lid back on. I've got a pot out back. I guess it's enough if I fix cornbread. I swear, child, y'all have crabbed that marsh to extinction. At the mention of a pot, Maddie understands that all is right with the world, that Meemaw must have known where she was and that she does not care. The cooler feels lighter as she shuffles barefoot over the kitchen's scored linoleum, curling along its seams like parchment. On the back stoop, a pot is waiting, wide enough at its base to eclipse the gas burner below. The water is at a rolling boil, so furious, Maddie cannot see the bottom. The crabs look like samurai with daggers for eyes flitting in and out of russet shells, while bubbles of air cluster around their mouths. In the failing daylight, they do seem smaller than they had on the dock, Maddie thinks. Meemaw follows her through the kitchen, stopping at the cupboard to bring out some cornmeal and grease. Here y'all go, the girl says, like she is doing the crabs a grand favor when she tips the cooler and causes them to tumble by their own weight into the pot. Suddenly, the water is still, but the crabs are not still. Rather, they go insane with trauma. Ruthie watches her granddaughter from her side of a gnarly screen. It does not bother her that Maddie was crabbing without permission, or that she helped herself to the chicken without asking, or that she might even have been mean to the other girls and bullied them out of their share of the catch, but it bothers her that Maddie is not afraid of this part, the part that should be hardest. Even the boys Ruthie knew growing up shied away at the end, 
but not Maddie. When the time comes to deal the crabs into the pot, there is no holding her back. Maddie, you is queen of the crabs, Tom says, wiping his mouth and popping the tab on another beer. The girl's face glows. She loves attention, loves her grandpa, and invites greater praise. Mima says I crab too much, says there won't be no crabs left. Ruthie holds her tongue. It is all she can do not to make it known. Tom had said this first. Somehow, Ruthie always comes out on the short end of the stick. Because it's hot, they sit on the front porch where patched screens are barely enough to keep them from being eaten alive by mosquitoes. By 8.30, the sun has set behind their shanty, and the buzz of cicadas from surrounding woods ratchets up. In the space of one beautiful hour, the tops of pines fade from green to rose to violet. I'll tell you what we'll do, Tom says, moved by the creative force of the beer. Gather up them claws. What claws? The crab claws, silly. They've been thrown out. It don't matter. Tom. Ruthie tries to intercede from the couch, though despite her enormous presence, she has no say, and Tom shushes her with a wave of his hand. I'll get him out the trash. What are we going to do? We'll clean him up, bleach him till they's white as stars, and then we'll make you a crown with pinchers running all around the outside. You think you got enough? Stick up creation, Ruthie wheezes. Don't pay her no mind, Tom says. She's just sore because she can't be queen. And who gets to stay here all day and smell it? Not you, not her highness. If there ain't enough, I know where we can get more, the girl shrills, cautious in her exuberance not to mention the Devonshire place by name. Lord, if we don't already owe these crabs a heavenly debt. Ruthie is at her wit's end, giving it all she's got to stand. Run on, Tom says, and fetch them claws. To the west, the wind kicks up. Through the pines comes thunder. For several minutes, neither Tom nor Ruthie speaks. He drinks, and she broods. Then, as if on cue, lightning fractures the sky, and the rain starts, first in drops that are easy to count, and then in floods of sound like static. I don't know why you insist on making my life so hard, she says. Trouble with you is... You don't know how to have no fun. The temperature drops, and all hell breaks loose. Hail and a torrent that sprays and waves across the roof. And who gets to stay here all day to smell it? Not you, not Maddie. On second thought, I might be wrong, Tom says. Mists of cold rain hiss through the shoddy screens. He stands up, offering a hand to Ruthie. Maybe you is queen of the crabs. It rains for three days, and Maddie's mood worsens by the hour. It's only water. Water never kill nobody. The girl is a terror, and Ruthie would just as soon get her out of the house as have her there with a sinister band of claws balanced on her head and a smell like rotten fish trailing behind. Prisoner in my own home, Ruthie moans, that's cause you so fat, the girl says. She knows Meemaw can't chase her. But Maddie's glory is incomplete, 
her crown like a smile with teeth missing, and there is only one place to go to complete the mission. By Tuesday afternoon, the rain tapers off, and Maddie calls Shell and tells her to meet her at the dock. Can I go now? Maddie tries one last time. No, child. How many times I got to tell you it ain't our dock? The girl sees why Meemaw is cross. The television remote is on the floor beside her ankle, which is the size and texture of a cantaloupe. Maddie picks up the device and places it on the table with deference. It is behavior, the girl concedes, not befitting royalty. What do you say? Maddie asks. What I say is if you do go to the Devonshire place, I will get up out of this chair and I will whip the daylights out of you. For the half mile that runs from the shanties through woods to the marsh's edge, small kettles of low ground connect in soft pools of water. They make for patterns that skew the once familiar landscape, so it takes Maddie an extra few minutes to arrive at the Devonshire estate. As she makes it around back and discovers Shell is not there, Maddie begins to stew. A few minutes later, the sky spoils and the rain resumes. In all directions, the marsh is bloated with the tide and the rain. The water level creeps up, licking the good grass at the foot of the yard. Further out, vast, swirling fields of gray water bury the patches of reed that usually outline tributaries. All is sea. Even with no way to track the time, Maddie decides to wait for Shell. A minute later, she gives up. The cardboard frame of her crown, worse than being incomplete, is waterlogged and slipping from her brow. Irritated as much with Meemaw as with Shell, Maddie turns and nearly runs into her friend. The girl's hair is lacquered to their heads. Nice hat, Shell says, trapless and without so much as a ball of twine. Maddie's crown slips to the tip of her nose, then around her neck like a noose. A bag of hearts, the least part of the fowl, sags hopelessly toward the ground. Thunder drones beyond the horizon, past fetid marsh, out over the gulf. The air is warm, moist, and uncommonly pleasant. I came for crabs, and I ain't leaving without crabs. Shell watches as Maddie turns toward the dock, now little more than a footpath. I only gotta have two more, she yells back. You ain't gonna catch nothing, Shell says, following anyway. The planks are green with mold, and water bobs up between them. Walking is more like balancing on a raft. Reeds litter the way, evidence that the tide has recently been above boards, and on both sides of the dock the currents churn in broad eddies. You ain't gonna catch nothing, Shell says again, but Maddie is too far ahead. At the end of the channel, where the pier widens to a square platform, the river has risen seven feet, distended to the very lip of the dock. Maddie has never seen the water so high or fast. The air is thick and cold, and Maddie takes off her crown and puts it at her feet between them. What if we can't get back? Shell asks. 
but already Maddie is removing her shoes, ready to take a seat and let her legs dangle in the rushing black water. What do you mean? What if the dog washes away? It's not like Shell to worry, and this makes Maddie bolder. I guess we'll be stuck out here. Put your feet in. Shell, adapting to the new role of subject, takes off her shoes. Or maybe we'll get swept away, Maddie says. Lots of stuff could happen. Shell dunks her legs into the water, and the current jerks her calves toward the river bend, pulling her fanny forward. Whoa! She gasps as her hands slam against the surface. Or maybe we'll die. Maybe, Maddie says. But I don't think so. Why not? because I am queen of the crabs. Maddie offers this insight with great humility, onerously, as she reclaims her crown to inspect it for damage. That's why. Who made you the queen of anything? To the east, beyond where the marsh ends and the gulf begins, a new blackness claims the horizon, broken every few minutes, by the faint flicker of a lightning field. It's getting late, and with the weather hard to tell how long before dark. I have an idea, Maddie says, her face as brooding as the sky. She knows she won't get what she came for, and because she is not used to being denied, someone must be punished. Maddie puts on the crown, as if to summon both the courage and the authority it brings. Here's what I want you to do. Maddie's done fell in! Shell screams with what feels like her last breath. She's run the entire way back, only to find Ruthie on her feet, not what she'd been told to expect, frying a skillet of okra for dinner. Down at the end, she gasps, full of drama, before collapsing to the floor. Fifteen years later, Maddie is home for her grandfather's funeral. It's winter, but the Devonshires are not at home. A maid answers the door and consents to the young woman going out back, where Maddie is struck by how nothing much has changed. She shudders to be in the same place, under the pergola, where she hid as a child, seeing the marsh. Nothing will ever change. Color is siphoned from the sky, and from the side of the house, Meemaw appears as an apparition plodding for the dock. The girl hardly knew her grandmother could walk, let alone run, and by the time Maddie makes it to the end of the yard, Meemaw is already halfway down the jetty. But now... Maddie walks slowly, knowing how the vision ends. It's the dream that haunts her in the city, where the crabs are always with her, the great survivor crabs, her subjects, coming back again and again on menus, in cartoons, and on advertisements to remind her who wins in the end. At the edge of the dock, Meemaw would have seen the crown she left, but when the young woman arrives, only the jagged teeth of shorn planks remain. Now as then, and a long fall to the bank, and the river, and a life abundant, always there, just beneath the surface.
Lyle Roebuck is a novelist, essayist, and critic. He lives in Chicago, Illinois, and Florence, Italy. Follow him on Twitter at Lyle Roebuck. That's at L-Y-L-E-R-O-E-B-U-C-K. So, this story. Um, we get a lot of stories about kids. That's true. Do you true. notice this trend? Do you notice this? I hadn't until you mentioned it, but definitely recently we've had a lot of stories about kids. Yeah, definitely. Like a lot of like kids getting in trouble and then like learning a life lesson and mm-hmm. you know that whole thing. Which I kind—I mean, I enjoy a story like that. If the kids are fun, people. I think it's fun just to to see people kind of try and write as a as a child in the mind of a child because it, mm-hmm. it can be hard because to put yourself back in that mindset. And I think Lyle does a good job for the most part um, doing that. Yeah, which definitely. Is kind of, which is kind of good. I mean, and all of our writers have too. It's it's not easy. Yeah, but it's like something that everybody can relate to because obviously everybody was a kid at some point. Exactly. Very true. Good observation. Um, oh, thank you, Jim. Um. But yeah, no, I also enjoyed um, when I was just rereading it really quick. Um, the I mean, all we have a lot of great descriptive writers, and like it's. Definitely, descriptive writing is is not uncommon, but it's descriptive writing done well is 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 uncommon. And I think um, the way he describes the crabbing and like the the scenery, I think it really sets a tone for kind of um, what's like what's going on with the characters, where they are. Like a sense of place in a story is so important, and this story needs a sense of place, and it definitely has one, which you know, so also good. Um, so that was kind of nice too to have that. Um, yeah, I, I had no problem like picturing everything that was going on, right, being like exactly. right in the story. Yeah, yeah, like you could you could put yourself right there and and kind of be there. Um, I was gonna say something else, but I can't remember what it was. I don't know. I can't think of it right now. But it okay. it reminded me. I think I bring up, I brought this book once before, and people were gonna think I'm obsessed with it. But I really do like this book. And it, and if if anyone has any of our listeners have read it, um, they'll probably agree. It reminds me a lot of. There as you're watching God, Zora, Zora Neale Hurston's mm-hmm. novel. Um, not about kids or anything, but just like it's about that like deep South with the tradition and the and the, the food and and all like a lot of that different there a lot of that stuff um, and description and just kind of like how the land and and the is affects the people. Oh, that's what I was gonna say. Um, so as as he's describing all these all this like you know the crabs and like the marsh and, and the land and the heat and the sun. Um, I really like that contrast, like where they are at that moment when then, and then contrast it against where they are at the other points in the story, like the change of time. Mm-hmm. Cause the change of time has no description really of where they are. It's just kind of like character dialogue and like, just like kind of moving the plot forward. But I, I like that and how it, the contrast is like, I feel like like kids notice so much that like, that's why, I'm 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 just guessing, but that's why he kind of did that in that way was that the kid like kids notice all these things around them like and, and adults like they don't necessarily notice all they're always worried about like their interactions with people or like what's going on around like they're not really noticing like the things that are happening around them like even in nature or whatever and I thought it was he did I think he just like tied that all together very well. Yeah, that was really good. Thanks. <laughs> I'm out of breath now. I'm <laughs> I, I like. I don't even have anything to say to it. That like that was just really good. Thank you. Oh God, I'm getting get. I got back in my groove for a second. Yeah, you did. You're you're like right back in it right now. Hey, well, um, I really like that. I 
genre too. I I really enjoy you know I think Southern writers just do such an excellent job of of describing the place they live and making people who are reading about it feel you know like they're there. Lyle, you you did it. You nailed it. Right. <laughs> um, but I, it's a Southern writer. I don't know what it is. And um, like Faulkner, for example. I mean, yeah. the sense of place is like that's all that's the entire story you know and he, he obviously has a dialogue and everything in there but like knowing where you are and and understanding that place is like so important to you know really getting at the, the heart of the story and i think that's what he's doing here i bet you if you asked him he's read a lot of faulkner yeah um but it's yeah it's i mean any any novelist that you pick up like you can tell if they you know feel a connection to the place that they're writing about yeah it's just it's it's very apparent and then that, that's i mean that's why some novels are i mean hemingway for example i mean i feel like i also talk about hemingway a lot but i did a lot of studying about it uh, with his books and i mean he writes about places that he's lived and he loves these places and you can tell that and it becomes through in the stories like the sun also rises him he hemingway was i mean a francophile for sure but um like he lived there he loved paris like paris was his city like that was where he lived and you can tell that through jake barnes you can tell that through all the characters in that book and it and it gives this gives the story a kind of um like it's this is a weird word too but kind of like a meatiness to it like it's Mm -hmm. not just like topical conversation between two people it's it's these people that are living in this place of this place this place that gives them values and and the people that don't don't take the values from this place and you and they become the kind of the antagonist of the story mm-hmm. you know like like um irish she kind of doesn't you know she's she's just in it for it seems like for the crabs and like maddie is too but she also seems like she notices a lot more like she's noticing the colors of the crabs like of the claws and of how like that what they look like and mm-hmm. you know she's very in tune with her surroundings while Iris is just kind of like, Oh, you stupid girls. You didn't bring all the stuff for whatever, blah, blah, blah. Right. But so I think that was, that was good. It's good work. Yeah. So one of the things that I thought we should talk about was the theme of death in this story. Mm -hmm. Um, It's kind of right in your face at the beginning. They handled death differently in the South, which is, that's like the opening line of the story. Mm -hmm. Um, And, there was a lot of death in the story. Like, as I thought about it, it wasn't something that I necessarily, you know, had in my mind the whole way through. But, you know, Tom goes to the funeral um, and Ruthie has her fears of cancer and she's also concerned about Maddie's. Wait, the funeral is for the, for. I think who? just for someone that they know. I don't think it's any okay. character That's in the story. That's what I was confused about a little bit. So you have all that. Ruthie's afraid of Maddie's lack of fear or pause when she kills the crabs that she catches. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, Maddie almost dies at the end and she only comes back to the Devonshire place when her grandfather, Tom, dies. So oh, Yes, Tom dies. I was like, somebody dies. They yeah. Know. yeah, he dies at yeah. the end. Um, yes. So I don't know. I just, um, I think, you know, one kind of theme tenet is that you know and this isn't um specific to the crab it's kind of i'm sure you'd have a ton of examples of this but where death kind of brings you back to the people and places you might have otherwise left behind um 
yeah, I don't know. Do, do you have anything, anything on that? Their eyes are watching God. Same thing. Same it's, thing. There um, you go. Same, the same theme. Yeah, I don't know. I, that's, it's interesting. But uh, And also the death of the crabs. Yeah, and that, that was and, one and thing. And making a crown out of the, the shells. Yeah, that was that was interesting. And I like I think I missed it the first couple times I read the story. But the last time I read it, I really picked up on how concerned Ruthie was about Maddie just like throwing the crabs in the pot and how she thought that she should be like just have some sort of not remorse but just have some sort of feeling on it and she seems to not have any feelings on that right right so maybe you can view the very end of the story as like a you know this is how Maddie grows up she learns that like she just kind of learns what death is all about and how like to take it seriously whereas a child she wasn't taking it as seriously i don't know yeah. i don't know if that's no, that's yeah, reading too no, much I into like, it but no i think that's yeah i think that's what it's she's trying to get at because that's when he's interjecting all those other moments of uh, like other like pl- t- periods of time or places where they're at like they're they are very associated with some something or someone dying mm-hmm. and i think that's kind of what it is is that like these little kids have no fear but they should, and like they don't have any fear of the of the people who own the dock coming down. They they're just kind and, of focused to, on crabbing and whatnot. And I think. And then yeah, Ma- Maddie at sense. the end has no fear of the river, and right? She, right. Right. Like maybe that's what I would hope that that's what you know puts the fear in her of, you know, hey, just we don't know exactly what happened, but we can assume that she fell in and she you know got dragged down the river a little bit, and that. I would imagine that that kind of um, scared her a little scared, bit. Scared the shit out of her. Yeah, I, I can't blame put the her fear, for that. Put the fear in God in her. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, um, absolutely. So unless you have something else, I want to go into the the playing the game theme that I playing the thought game. up. We can end on this. So um, I don't know if if you if you get what what I meant by that, but you know, like when you're in your teenage years and you're trying to sneak something past your parents you kind of have to like say a certain thing or like not do something you just kind of learn like learn what the rules are and you learned how to work within those rules and um i don't know i felt like there was a lot of that going on in here between maddie and ruthie because you know maddie knew that she could take the chicken parts and go crabbing and you know, Ruthie wouldn't really try and stop her, but she also knew that, you know, there was that one moment where she, like, noticed that Ruthie had dropped the TV remote, and that's why she was kind of upset, and she thought to, like, pick it up and give it to her, and then she, like, was able to go on her way, and um, then you have Ruthie and Tom, where, you know, Ruthie's kind of mad that Tom isn't getting his work, you know, he's not getting a full day of work in because he went to the funeral, um, but she knows that if she just starts yelling at him about that, that would only make things worse. And so she kind of, you know, gets interested and invested in what he's talking about, whether she's actually interested or not. We don't know. Um, but she like kind of nudges him towards going back to work later in the day and it works. Um, and then you have Maddie and her friends where it, there's, there's a little, like, it's a complicated dynamic because, you know, I would say that they're playing a little bit of a game with her. There's a moment where, you know, Maddie says that she should take seven of the nine crabs that they caught or something. Mm-hmm. And everybody just kind of, you know, says, okay, whatever. I think it's five, maybe five of the, the nine. Everybody's like, okay, yeah. you know, we know it's not an equal share, but 
we can tell that she's, you know, fired up about something and it wouldn't be wise to, you know, to fight her on this. So, um, I don't know if, I don't know if you, if there's anything more to say about it other than that's like a pretty central like plot point of the story, but, um, it's definitely going to come up a lot next week as well. It's kind of, I think what that whole story is about, um, um, definitely have to reread next week's story because I'm drawing such a blank. I remember the name so well, but I don't give me a refresher. So, uh, crazy mom, um, older daughter, younger brother. The younger brother has no idea how to deal with the crazy mom. Yes, yeah. and then and they're crying. Oh my god, that one was sad. Yeah, like brutally sad. But yeah, that really got me. That one. Oh, I didn't. Oh man, I don't want to be sad. Yeah. Damn it. But. Oh. We have, um, so yeah, this week we have the crab, obviously. Next week we have reassembly required, which is kind of sad. And the following week we have our one-year anniversary episode, which is not going to be sad, I hope. No, it's not. It's going to be exciting, people. Listen up. It's going to be electric. Yeah, I'm getting a lot of responses um, awesome! Wait, oh my great. god, that's amazing! Yeah, so uh, nothing's like totally, nothing's worked out yet, but um, I think I've gotten at least six responses so far. Hell yeah! So, Thank you! Thank you, contributors! Yeah. You're the best! You're the bomb diggity! So everybody's gonna find out what that is next yeah, week, sh- or yeah. I won't say anything else. No, no, we, I, we did a great job uh, covering that, or like not revealing what it is. Keeping um, it on the DL. On the DL. If you want to know what it is, you got to listen up. Got to listen up. August 31st. Uh, we started last September, last September 1st. So this is as close as we can get to a yeah, year don't, out. Don't try and, uh, yeah, don't try and uh, rain on our parade, people. It's close enough. Yeah. So. That's going to be great. Yeah. So I think we're, we're all done with uh, Lyle Robux the Crab. And we want to thank him again for sharing that with us. Hell yeah. Thanks, um, Lyle. Thanks again, Carl, for hosting with me. Oh, Madonna. When are you going to stop thanking me, Jim? (laughs) Never. Um, (laughs) Thank Chloe again for all her editing help. She's been helping every week. Always thank Chloe. Um, And thanks, everybody, for listening, sticking with us for the last year through all our changes and missed episodes, which didn't happen that often, but still happens sometimes. No, whatever. Thank you, people. We really appreciate it. And, you know, we want you to keep listening up and going on this crazy ride with us because Mm -hmm. people, there's a lot of good writers out there and we're just out there to find them and give them a voice. So thank you for doing that and being a part of that. Yep. And thanks to the writers for taking a chance on us when we were basically an unknown publication doing something a little bit different than a lot of other places do it. So yeah, thanks to them. too. That's it. Thank you. Um, So next week, Reassembly Required by Samantha Melvin. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. I don't want you to be able to not hear me.